In case you weren't aware, the Bible, your Bible, that book in your hands, was not originally written with chapter and verse breaks. Instead, these particular markers, the chapter and verses, were added years later by translators to make it easier to reference passages of Scripture. Now, the placement of these chapter and verse verses, by and large, are, are pretty obvious. Um, and yet, this transition that we have between the end of chapter 7, John 7, and the beginning of chapter 8, this transition is admittedly a bit wonky, and should be seen not as a break, but as more of a continuous thought. Now, following the events of, of the end of chapter 7, events that took place on the Temple Mount during the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, John writes in John 7, verse 53, so the final verse of chapter 7, that everyone went to his own house, and then chapter 8 immediately opens, but Jesus, a continuous thought, went to the Mount of Olives. Now, though the religious pilgrims and the religious leaders who had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles had begun the journey home, likely that evening, this eighth day of the feast. Not so with Jesus. Instead of making his way back to the Galilee, which is where his headquarters was located, John, who, keep in mind, is an eyewitness of everything we're reading, tells us that Jesus, instead of going back to Galilee, he goes instead to the Mount of Olives, now, as far as the geography of Jerusalem is concerned, trying to kind of, you know, get a feel for, for the movements here. Jesus, you know, after this final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, would have left the Temple Mount, which is technically Mount Moriah. And he would have headed, headed east. He would have gone down and across a valley known as the Kidron Valley before making his ascent up the Mount of Olives, located just to the east of Mount Moriah. This trek, on a side note, would have led him through one of his favorite gardens at the base of the Mount of Olives, a garden known as Gethsemane. Typically, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would lodge with some friends of his, Mary, Martha, and, and their brother Lazarus, who owned a home in the town of Bethany, which was on the eastern slope of the Olivet. But this evening, Jesus does something a little different. He leaves the temple, goes across the Kidron, through Gethsemane, up onto the, 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 the Mount of Olives. And he camps out. We, we have no idea what Jesus does. We don't know if he sleeps or if he stays up praying. But it's a picturesque view of the temple, of the city. It's beautiful. As a matter of fact, if you Google Jerusalem or the temple, most of your panorama shots of Jerusalem come from the Mount of Olives. So that, that glimpse into the scene is what you would have gotten if you had been Jesus. Well, verse 2, transitioning, John writes that early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, before we proceed any further, I do want to acknowledge that there is a measure of controversy surrounding this record of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. This controversy centers on the topic of ancient manuscripts and really whether or not this story should be in your Bible at all. I just want to acknowledge that there, there is a controversy and a debate about this. Personally, I completely reject the suggestion that this story should not be included in John's Gospel 
or that it never happened. Furthermore, just so you're aware, not one scholar that I trust when it comes to these type of matters holds to such a radical position. Additionally, you might notice that in the margins of your Bible, there's probably a notation letting you know somewhat of this controversy, but not one translator has ever been audacious enough to remove the story from your Bible altogether. Aside from the fact that contextually, John's gospel makes little sense if you skip these 11 verses. If you're reading through and you go from John 8 verse 1 to then John 8 verse 12, nothing makes any sense. Aside from that, the Greek structure of the text, of of these verses, is absolutely 100% consistent with John's writing style. A great example of this is verse 6, where John kind of takes a break from the narrative by adding a measure of, of, of commentary. Now, pertaining to ancient documents, the ancient documents in question, as well as the mountain of historical evidence supporting this story being in your Bible. Basically, if this piques your interest and you want to study it a little bit more on your own, I've, at the bottom of c316.tv, this, the, the page for this sermon, I've included a link to a, an audio file that, that Pastor Joe Foch gave. It's about seven minutes long, specifically dealing with these things, the ancient documents, the historical evidence. If you're really interested in this and you want more, instead of me stealing his research and kind of regurgitating it, and you're like, man, Zach's real smart. He came up with all that on his own. Instead of just blatantly stealing it from Pastor Joe, I've just included his words. So if you're interested in this and you're like, man, I want to know more, you can listen to it on your own. Don't listen now. Uh, you can listen on your own. It's about seven minutes in length, uh, and it'll at least at least prompt further study, and uh, and substantiate, add a little bit more uh, uh, validity to this being in your Bible. That's all I'm going to say on the matter, and we're going to move into the text because I think it's in the Bible. John, as John is recalling the events of this day, he remembers first it being early in the morning that Jesus came again into the temple. Now, I want you to imagine, as we often do, being a bystander present that fall morning. Like, get yourself into the scene. Let's make the text come alive. With the rising sun cresting over the Mount of Olives to the east, you can imagine that the temple precincts, early in the morning, slowly begin to fill with rays of, of sunlight. I mean, the scene Herod's temple, it's majestic. The gold and the reflections, it's beautiful. Additionally, since it's mid-October, about this time of the year, the warmth of the day is a welcome break from the chill of the night air. Now, as you make your way that morning into the temple, you can't help but notice that the mood is much different today than it was yesterday during the Feast of Tabernacles. Most of the pilgrims have already departed, the festivities have ceased, the celebration has returned to a normalcy, with the primary activities of that morning probably being focused on the necessary cleanup. You also notice that the crowd that morning in the temple, especially early in the morning, is much different than it was yesterday. Those present are a combination of locals, priests finishing out their duties, a a few pilgrims, right? who just stopped by to see the temple one more time on their way out. And then you see Jesus. You're a little surprised to see Jesus that morning. You see Jesus enter through the east gate with his disciples. 
Now, after the uproar that Jesus had caused the day before that prompted the religious leaders to make their first attempt to arrest him, you can't help, as you watch this scene unfold, admire Jesus' tenacity. I mean, his fearlessness. He's coming right back to the scene. He's entered the temple. He's come from the Mount of Olives. And he's returned for really one purpose. John tells us he came to teach the people. In public, no less. Now, in contrast to the day before when Jesus stood up and cried out to the masses, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. This occasion is a lot different. Jesus is not standing up and he's not crying out to the masses. Instead, Jesus is sitting down. The proper position of a rabbi in that day. And he's teaching. He's expounding on the word of God. Now as I imagine that morning. I see Jesus coming into the temple. And taking up likely a seat. On one of the, one of the, the many outer porticos. That Herod had built around the temple. Jesus probably begins teaching to a crowd. Uh, not more than just the twelve. But as word begins to spread. That Jesus was there. The crowd starts to swell in size. John says that it doesn't take long before all the people who were in the precincts that morning to come to Jesus. How large the audience ends up being, we can't say for sure, other than the fact that a lack of specificity, I'll get that out, implies that the crowd was probably considerable, left a large footprint. As you're standing there, and that was the custom of the day, that the teacher would sit and everyone would stand. As you're standing there listening to Jesus, teaching, there's some point in the morning that you find yourself growing a bit annoyed. You begin to notice a ruckus. Something happening, not close, but, but outside the temple, out in the distance, a hubbub. And and as you're standing there trying to pay attention to what Jesus is saying, and and the noise is getting louder and louder, you're thinking to yourself, why are people yelling and screaming this early in the morning? You're doing your best, honestly, to focus. But it's just becoming more and more difficult as the commotion makes its way closer and closer to where you are. Soon, it becomes evident that the commotion itself is actually coming to Jesus, that there's an intention to it. The crowd, starting at the back, begins to part. And an interesting entourage is making its way through the the middle. Verse 3, John says that the scribes and the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. It's likely, initially at least, you're kind of struck by this posse, this posse of religious men. On one end, you have the scribes. And the scribes were the experts of the Levitical law. You think of them as the lawyers. And they're joined with the Pharisees, which were a religious political party, but they were the fundamentalists of the day. The right. The obvious question that comes to your mind is, what are they doing up so early? And secondly, why are they coming to Jesus? Maybe they're coming to arrest him, you think. Sadly, your questions are soon answered. When you notice that this collection of pious men have brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And again, you immediately wonder, why are they bringing this woman to Jesus? 
What's the connection? And aside from that, why are they making such a public spectacle of what should probably be more of a private matter? Now, this Greek word that we have, caught, it it literally means to lay hold of or to seize upon. The description of this woman being caught in adultery implies to us that she was arrested in the very act of committing a sexual sin. Now, if that sounds terrible, in actuality, it's probably much worse than that. Quoting David Guzik, who's quoting Henry Morris. Guzik, that was a joke, but that's okay. I wasn't reading Morris, I was reading Guzik, quoting Morris. Anyway, quote, legally speaking, the standard of evidence was very high for this crime of adultery. There had to be two witnesses, and they had to agree perfectly. They had to see the sexual act take place. It wasn't enough to see the pair leaving the same room together or even lying in the same bed. The actual physical movements of the couple must have been capable of no other explanation. Conditions for adultery were so stringent, they could have been met only on the rarest of occasions. Now understand one thing about this particular situation. This woman, both her sin and her shame were completely laid bare and placed on public display. Like her sin, committed in a private setting, had been drugged into the light of day, kicking and likely screaming in utter panic. The very act of intercourse, which she knew, was a crime punishable by death. These religious men, who no doubt had been watching, peeping, observing for the specific moment that a sexual encounter took place, and when that happened, they burst into the room while she's still in the act, and they snatch her from the bed and from her partner, and they drag her out of the building, into the streets, into the temple. And if that's not horrifying enough, then they take her through a crowd of onlookers before throwing her before Jesus. I mean, imagine the complete humiliation. Now, as you're standing there, again, watching all of this happen, it's clear that this woman has been totally blindsided. She didn't know this was going to happen. She's been blindsided by a group of men who are not interested in demonstrating any type of compassion or decency. I'm sure that she's not only petrified, but in the moment and how it all happened, she's probably disoriented. Aside from this, her obvious distress is compounded by the knowledge that she had done something wrong. She knew that. This woman knew adultery was a sin before the Lord, and she knew the consequences weren't good. She'd been caught in the act. There was no wiggle room. There was no way she was getting out of this. This woman knew what was likely to happen next. Her thoughts immediately turned to the the effects her poor decisions were going to have on her family. I'm sure she's thinking about the, the unnecessary pain 
that she had caused her husband, or the, the embarrassment and ridicule her kids were going to have to endure, the shame of her parents, what they were to experience. It was likely overwhelming for her. As she's dragged from one street to another, grief engulfs her. What have I done? I knew this was wrong. Why did I do this? I'm sure she's thinking, I have sacrificed everything I love for one night of pleasure. This woman had sown to the wind and she knew she was about to reap the whirlwind. She knew her life was likely over. As these men violently drag her through the streets, she has no idea where they're actually taking her. No question, as they're dragging her, she's crying out for, for mercy the entire way. And beyond that, when she's brought into the temple, to a public place, it, it added injury to insult. She's thrown to the ground before Jesus, fully exposed to a mob of shocked onlookers. What was she wearing? I'm sure they didn't allow her to get dressed. There she is, at the feet of Jesus, on the ground, in the dirt. You're watching. And she's struggling to cover up her nakedness or at a minimum preserve some measure of modesty. She's weeping. And she, as you can imagine, dares not make eye contact with anyone. And we jump back to the story. And when they had set her in the midst, they then say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Now, if you were present watching all of this happen, there is no doubt. And let's be honest about this for a minute. There is no doubt that as you're watching this all unfold, you would have found the entire situation to a degree suspect. Like something is a little fishy here. Something's not exactly adding up. First and foremost, the obvious inconsistencies would have been the absence of the participating party in the affair, right? I mean, it takes two to commit adultery. Like you're standing there and you're thinking to yourself, where is the dude? Like they present this woman and they state she's caught in adultery in the very act. You know that the threshold for such a conviction is incredibly high. So it, the absence of a man being present, that's just weird. This isn't, this is strange. And aside from the fact that the man also caught in adultery is nowhere to be found, the other circumstance that would have fostered a clear suspicion as to what's really occurring would center on, on the obvious ill intent of her accusers. Did you notice that as well, just from the flow of the text? I mean, it's clear that they've brought this woman and they've thrown her before Jesus, not out of a concern for justice. Or why would they bring him to Jesus? They have brought her to place Jesus into an impossible situation. Like, though it's difficult to prove in the moment, right from the start, as you're standing there, the whole situation stinks to high heaven. You didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to surmise that a trap is being set using this woman. 
Now, with the advantage of time, John actually removes all doubt that this is indeed a trap by adding some commentary in verse 6. John says, this they said, testing him. Make no bones about it. They wanted to test him that they might have something of which to accuse him. This woman was a pawn. Now, pertaining to the law of Moses, the religious leaders do have a point. They were correct that this woman should be stoned to death. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, we're told that the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And then again in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, we read that if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. Now, the trap that these religious leaders are using this woman to try to catch Jesus in, it's simple. If Jesus in this scenario, it's public, if Jesus advocated for mercy, well, he would have been directly contradicting Moses in the Levitical law. But on the flip side, since the Romans had revoked the right of the Jews to enact capital punishment, and they didn't consider adultery to be a crime worthy of such an action, if Jesus had agreed with them that the woman should be stoned and led the charge, they could then build a case that Jesus was fostering rebellion against Rome and Juliana law. I mean, this is a catch-22. Kind of no way out. Stone her, they'll get him. Don't stone her, they'll get him. Now, reasoning, the various ways Jesus might attempt to wiggle his way out of their snare, I'm confident, sure, that these religious leaders could not in any way have ever anticipated what Jesus would do next. We're told, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. What a moment. I mean, once again, you're in the scene. You're watching this unfold. This naked woman is thrown down before Jesus with little regard or any semblance of compassion. She's curled up on the temple floor. She's exposed, ashamed, and, and guilty. Beyond that, because the man wasn't arrested, the reality that she had been used, that had to have hit hard. It, it's evident now, right, that she's been set up. Set up by a man she trusted and a man that she had been intimate with. Sold her up the river. Yes, she's naked and guilty and ashamed, but more than that, she's broken and she's alone, totally alone. As these religious men continue to demonstrate zero regard for the embarrassment they're causing her, no appropriate sense of justice or even a lack of basic human decorum and decency, spending their time challenging Jesus on an issue of the Mosaic law versus Roman law. Jesus does something different. John recalls how Jesus, and he not only completely ignores them, but his focus turns to this woman. I mean, it's like a heat-seeking missile. He stoops down 
next to her. And then we're told, and this is one of the strangest occurrences in, in the scriptures, that, that Jesus began writing something on the ground with his finger. Now, though you can find all kinds of theories speculating as to what Jesus must have been writing, and I won't indulge any of them because they're nothing more than stupid conjecture, and here's why. The Holy Spirit specifically doesn't want us to know. So, so coming up with your own theory is pointless, and, and, and not just pointless, but you're missing the point. You see, the reason this interesting detail is included is not for us to have a record of what Jesus wrote, but instead for us to have a record of what Jesus did. It's, it's the activity that's recorded for us. First, I should point out, never once does Jesus challenge the assertions of the religious men. Never once. Aside from the fact the woman had been set up, Jesus does not debate her guilt. Does he? Do you, do you read it? I don't. Jesus knew that she had committed adultery and that the perfect law of God subsequently con condemned her to death. And yet, while she was guilty as charged, it is the posture of Jesus in the presence of a sinner that powerfully contrasted that of the religious leaders who are towering over. Here they are towering over without any regard while we're told, what does Jesus do? He stoops down and he writes a message for her eyes only. Think of the moment from her perspective. Here was Jesus. We don't know how much of Jesus she knew, how exposed to his ministry she was. But here's Jesus, a bystander, identifying with her humiliation. In such a simple act as just sitting with her, Jesus was letting this convicted woman know that she was not alone. Not alone in her shame. We'll address that idea a little bit more at the end of our study. But you know, it really is a tragedy that when we're often confronted with a person caught in sin, as Christians, rarely do we emulate the posture of Jesus. Sadly, the church Christians we either end up towering over the person ready to mete out an appropriate justice, or we choose to run away, leaving that person to deal with the consequences of their sin on their own. Rarely do we emulate what Jesus did, and it's a shame. Well, verse 7, so they continued asking him. So they're peppering him. So Jesus raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. How long Jesus initially remained sitting with this woman while the scribes and the Pharisees are pressing him for answers to their questions? We have no idea. And yet, at some point, Jesus gets just annoyed. Like I, you know, He's ignoring them. They're not getting the point. So John says at a juncture, he gets up. And he turns to them and he says, He who is without sin among you, 
Let him throw a stone at her first. And then, most amazingly, Jesus looks back at the woman, gets back into the dirt, and continues writing whatever it was he was writing. Honestly, this statement that Jesus makes to these men has been twisted to imply many things that it simply does not. Tragically, it is this very verse that's so often thrown around by a person caught in sin, hoping to dodge any type of accountability or escape the consequences. Have you ever been in those conversations? And that person caught throws it back to you. Well, Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Right? That's a warping of what Jesus is saying. First, from a macro perspective, there is one point that you can't escape. Jesus is not only conceding this woman's guilt, but in his statement, do you notice that Jesus is affirming the fact that adultery was punishable by death? Like in this sense, Jesus is agreeing with Moses and supporting the mandates outlined by God in the law. Adultery was indeed a justifiable reason to enact the death penalty. He doesn't say, don't throw a stone. He just places some conditions on how stones should be thrown and by whom. And secondly, and this is in contrast to what many attempt to assert about the passage, but Jesus is in no way saying here that sinful humans are unable to hold others accountable for sinful behaviors. You can't make that jump, that leap, as if the only people who can cast a stone are those who are sinless, which is the argument some people try to make. I mean, think about that for a minute. If that is what Jesus is articulating, that the only way we can hold people accountable for their actions is to be sinless ourselves. Think about the obvious and gl- glaring uh, ramifications. One, if that's the case, the vast majority of the Old Testament law is absolutely unenforceable. Who's going to enforce it? Like, who, who can punish anyone? If a sinner can't do it. Two, the church, if this is the case, would have absolutely no right to enact necessary disciplines to address blatant, unrepentant sin, as the Bible mandates the church to do. And third, no one other than Jesus, who was sinless, would ever be able to measure out any type of practical punishment pertaining to sin. Now, obviously, it's with such a a perspective that, that such a perspective would stand in conflict to a lot of Scripture. So please consider what is Jesus actually saying then? No, this statement, he who is without sin, that statement in your Bible. First, it's unique, completely unique, so unique. This is the only place in the Bible that the singular word used here presents itself. Only one place. He who is without sin is one Greek word phrase in English, one word. And in actuality, the word itself has nothing or in no way describes a person who is sinless. That's not the intent of the word. Instead, this word describes a person with no consciousness of sin pertaining to a particular situation. That's what the word in the Greek means. Jesus is not saying here, he who has never sinned cast the first stone But instead he's saying, he who has a clean conscience pertaining to this woman 
and how she was caught in the act of adultery, you cast the first stone. That's what he's saying actually in the Greek. To this point, David Guzik makes this observation. Writing, in Jewish law, witnesses to the capital crime began the stoning. Jesus really said, we can execute her, but we must do it correctly. One of the witnesses must begin her execution. So who among you is the one who witnessed the crime and only brought to me the woman and not the man? Who designed the humiliation of this poor woman? Guzik continues, instead of passing a sentence upon the woman, Jesus passed a sentence upon her accusers. He didn't say don't execute her. He simply demanded that justice be fairly and righteously applied. What really makes this approach by Jesus brilliant is that he agrees with Moses, right? That the woman should be stoned. So he avoids that conflict. But at the same time, he doesn't directly contradict Roman law by instigating the woman's stoning. Because guess what happens? Everyone leaves. Aside from that, I love the fact that after Jesus issues this challenge, what does he do? He was about sin, cast the first stone. And then he rejoins the woman. While the religious leaders were focused on punishing sin, Jesus was more interested in ministering to the sinner. Isn't that the contrast? And again, there's a powerful lesson to this that we'll get to at the end of our study. I even imagine that Jesus remained with this woman just in case someone was audacious enough to throw a stone. Well, verse 9, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. To combat those who spend too much time speculating as to what Jesus wrote on the ground, and thereby overemphasizing that insignificant detail, notice It wasn't what they read that convicted their conscience, right? Did you see that? What convicted their conscience? What they heard. Not what they read, but what they heard Jesus say to them. They knew that they had all been complicit in the setup of this poor woman. They wanted to trap Jesus, and they used this woman to their ends. If they had ended up stoning this woman, they knew that they would have blood on their hands. For they were culpable. My guess is Jesus' approach here wasn't what they anticipated. Wasn't what they expected. Never in their wildest imaginations would they ever believe that Jesus would have told them to stone the woman. But in doing so, he called their bluff and revealed their own immorality. Continuing in verse 9, And Jesus was left alone, so they, they all leave, the oldest to the youngest, Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Once these accusers had departed and this woman received a covering, 
from Jesus. That's pure speculation on, on my part, but kind of logical in the way that she had been snatched and brought forward. John tells us that Jesus and the woman, they share a private moment with one another. Now, though Jesus has communicated something to her, right, and writing in the dirt with his finger, his first verbal word recorded is what? He says, woman, woman. Please understand, this is the same word that Jesus uses over and over and over again for his mother Mary. In all of John's writing, if you go back to the, the transformation of the water into wine, and Jesus refers to Mary's mother, and at the cross, he'll turn to John and say, you know, woman, this is your son. John, this is, this is your mother. Like this, is, this word, it's not a, a, a word of disrespect. Contrary. It's a word that articulates a lot of respect. And beyond that, there's a tenderness to it. Woman. And what I like most about this word is that in using it, Jesus rejected the notion that her behaviors fundamentally determined her identity. And there is great grace in that, friend. Like in using such a word... In the context of all that's just happened, Jesus is letting us know and her know how he viewed her the whole time. Jesus never once saw a harlot. He never saw a whore. He didn't call her either. He didn't brand her an adulterer or gave her a scarlet A. Instead, what did Jesus see? The whole time he saw a woman who while a creation of God, for God made the man and the woman, she had tragically fallen prey to the trappings of sin. After asking this woman, who are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? This woman speaks for the very first time in our story. In response to Jesus, she says something important. Look at it again. He, she says, no one, Lord. Now, now, in the Greek, this title, Lord, is Kyrios. It's where we get the English word Christ. Now, what makes that significant is that in its construct, the woman is not just attributing the title of Christ to Jesus, but in the Greek, she's personalizing the title to herself. When saying, not so, Lord, she's saying, not so, my Lord. It's personalized. And through this painful experience, one fostered by her sin, which ultimately led her to a point where she experienced God's love in Jesus, the woman makes a decision, doesn't she? She makes a decision to give her life to Christ, to Jesus. She decides to enthrone Jesus as the Lord of her life. And using this title, she's affirming that her life is now no longer her own. You see the word kyrios, it, it literally means he to whom a person now belongs. In response to this question, where are your accusers? This woman responds, there are none. Before adding, I am yours. How powerful. And while this in and of itself is profound, 
in her answer here, the woman is also making an appeal to Jesus as her Lord that demands a response from him. Though none of her accusers remain to condemn her, she recognizes, and don't miss this, that because Jesus was her Lord, the one in, in whom she belonged, Jesus could condemn her. Jesus could make the judgment. You see, in this moment, she's placing her faith in Jesus. I love Jesus' response. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a statement. You see, the statement, neither do I condemn you. And then this word condemn, it means to judge worthy of punishment. It indicated real faith, saving faith in Jesus specifically as a Savior. You see, the only way Jesus could, could make such a statement, because she was guilty, is Jesus could make this statement with the knowledge that his future work on the cross would pay the penalty, would satisfy the judgment. Now, not to beat a dead horse, but in saying, go and sin no more, Jesus is affirming the reality that it had been her sin that had led her here in the first place. And yet, while her sin had determined her past, an encounter with Jesus, one that made him Lord, changed her future. Jesus had forgiven her, and it was that fact he had forgiven that should now be the motivation by which she no longer lived a life of sin. Sin no more. It doesn't mean don't commit the act of sin, but don't live in a lifestyle of sin. Don't do this anymore. Before we turn our attention back to the two important points, I think, fundamental to the story, it should be mentioned that while Jesus forgave this woman caught in adultery, and while he refused to condemn her, the natural consequences of her sin did not magically disappear. Don't miss that. The forgiveness and the restoration of God did not change the fact that her reputation had been tarnished. Didn't determine her future, but in the moment, I mean, her marriage was likely destroyed or ruined. Her kids would experience a public embarrassment. Her actions carried with them natural consequences. That just receiving the forgiveness of God didn't give you a pass around. Aside from it all, and in closing, this story should be a challenge for how we handle a person caught in sin. It should be a challenge. First, and you'd think this would go without saying, but actively looking to catch a person in sin says much more about you than it does that person. Like these religious men, it is the person ignorant of their own immorality that is constantly on the prowl to expose someone else's. Don't do that. Two, I have found that people who jump at the opportunity to be a stone thrower are often the least qualified people to actually throw stones. <laughs> like More often than not, the compulsion to throw a stone at someone else 
occurs via the projection of their own guilt. Over and over and over again, I can present example after example after example of people that just get outraged over sin A, and then you come to find out that they had been committing that same sin. Projection. The truth is I've had to navigate these type of situations. The administration of a punishment concerning another person's sin should only come as a last resort and be so painful for the person tasked with that responsibility that they really don't want to do it. But they know they have to because Jesus has called them to place and, and fill that role. People are like, oh, I, I'm ready. No, you're not. Nor should you. Third, may we always consider our posture and the presence of anyone caught in sin. Whether it be an unbeliever, an acquaintance, a friend, or a brother or sister. Instead of towering over that person with a false sense of, of, of moral superiority, or running from that person, leaving them to deal with the consequences of their sin on their own, may we be willing, like Jesus, to humbly stoop down into that person's muck, to identify with them, to demonstrate compassion and love towards them, and let them know you're not alone. Like, may we be willing in such a dynamic like Jesus to remind the broken that this is not who God created them to be. That their identity doesn't have to be determined by the mistakes they've made, but by who Jesus is making them into. A woman. May we, like Jesus, be reminded that the person filled with shame, may we remind that person that Jesus came, as we're told in the Scriptures, not to condemn the world, but to do what? Jesus' intention is to save, not condemn. May we be willing to practically be Jesus' hands and feet to a person laid bare. May we remind that individual that it's only Jesus' grace bestowed when we were absolutely guilty that affords any of us the power to repent and sin no more. Never forget, and I'm preaching to myself, while the religious leaders were focused on punishing sin, Jesus was more interested in ministering to the sinner. That's the heart of Christ. Jesus cared more about this woman's future than her past. He cared more about who she would become if she accepted him as her Lord than who she was in her sin. As a word of caution, if you take me literally in any of this, these exhortations to stoop down in these dynamics... If you're willing to take the posture of Jesus, you need to be willing to catch a few stones in the process. Because there are stone throwers. Finally, and one of the things I love about this story is how applicational it should be for all of us. This entire story perfectly illustrates the mission of Jesus in your life and in mine. And no, if you don't know Jesus this morning, please consider what I'm about to say of him from personal experience. While the law catches each of us red-handed in our sin, 
declaring us guilty, condemning us to death, and then dragging us to an execution site. It is Jesus who stoops down from heaven to join our plight. When we were at our worst and most vulnerable, left naked by sin and filled with shame, Jesus meets us, not with condemnation, but by compassion and with love. Though religion is so willing to beat us down, Jesus has a much greater plan, doesn't he? Instead of condemning, he identifies. And when the stones start flying from the enemy, an enemy who seeks our destruction by setting us up alone to be accused, it's Jesus who says you're not alone and who steps in and who covers us by taking our judgment upon himself. Jesus steps in. And what results? Oh, well, when the accuser leaves, we rise up with him, just as this woman did, and stand tall in victory. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you are this morning experiencing the onslaught of stones hurled by Satan, stones that come with tags, you're not good enough. You're a failure. This morning, Jesus asks a simple question. Honestly, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Satan doesn't have the ability to condemn you. That's only God and he alone. And like this woman, may you be willing to respond in the quietness of your own soul. No one, Lord. No one, really. Because of your sacrifice on Calvary, my debt was satisfied. I stand in victory and not condemnation. This morning, Jesus wants you to hear his voice speaking through the void, saying, I don't condemn you either. You're free from the burden of expectation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then you should glory in the fact that it was the grace of your Savior demonstrated when you were guilty that now enables you to what? To go out those doors and sin no more. Not in your strength, not in your ability, not in your tenacity, but in the goodness of His grace. It's a change of motivation. The world ripped this woman off. Was ready to kill her. And Jesus stooped down. And He saved her. He liberated her. And He changed something inside of her. This woman, we don't know who she is. There's theories. But I can say this. After an encounter with Jesus, her life would never be the same. And so, Father, Lord, we let that thought settle in.